Welcome to Digging Deeper in Grace, a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Our goal each episode is to dig deeper into the scriptures with a focus on our most recent sermon. And now let's dig deeper. Well, thank you for joining us and a big howdy-do and welcome. I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, and today Tim Cockrell's back at the table with us. Tim, it's been three weeks. We had one of those five Wednesday months, so welcome back. Thanks. Yeah, and uh, we're going to be wrapping up our sermon series from Philippians. We'll be today in that last section, Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 23. So, Tim, let's jump into it. I loved your illustration of the seed sowing, mm-hmm. another allusion to your agricultural past, <laughs> but you began your sermon that way. You discussed the seeds of discontent, idolatry, entitlement, complaining or criticism, and envy. I've got to tell you, I often think of the things that I don't do that lead me into sin, but your thoughts were reminders that often uh, sins of commission, such as actively sowing these types of seeds are just as big of a problem for us. Absolutely. Well, you know, there are, there are external and internal factors for any aspect of sin. So we talked a little bit about some of these seeds of discontentment that people around us are getting things that we maybe wish that we had, or that our culture is telling us if you just had this thing, then you'd be satisfied. But what happens is that actually plants within us these seeds of discontentment, that we are not satisfied. We're restless and longing for something more. And many times, rather than identifying and uprooting those seeds, we we nurture them and we water them and we tell the, ourselves, I do deserve that or my satisfaction is contingent on my circumstances in these particular ways. And so in some ways, this idea of contentment is just another side of the coin of what we've been talking about all along of biblical joy, that our our settledness and our satisfaction is found in Christ and not in our circumstances. But more than we probably care to admit, often what we are doing is nurturing and watering those seeds of discontent. And none of us lives in a vacuum. Uh, we, whether we're parents of children, grandparents, whether we are around children, and it's not only children, we influence other people, no mm-hmm. matter what we're do, mm-hmm. doing, whether clients, uh, customers, family members, neighbors, whatever it might be. Let's talk a little bit about discipline ourselves. You talked about that somewhat mm-hmm. discipline, disciplining ourselves to have joy. What are some real proactive ways that say a parent or a neighbor or a boss or a one who is subject to a boss, anybody can work to discipline themselves. And so what are some things that we need to be careful of even as we're seeking to discipline ourselves uh, to have joy and not, not be actively sowing these seeds of discontent? Because it does happen naturally. Right. Yeah, I think I would go back to what Paul tells us in Philippians 4, verses 8 and 9, of, of guarding the gate of our mind. Whether we realize it or not, many times our phone or the internet, or the catalogs you get in the mail, depending okay, on... let's move on. This yeah. is getting too personal. <laughs> You're right. You know, the, the things that we allow into our minds are actually scattering these seeds, are sowing these seeds of, of thought patterns, of attitudes, of expectations and entitlement. And so just being aware of these mediums are not neutral. They have an agenda. There is an algorithm if you want to talk about social media, that is steering you in a particular direction. And so we have to just really be on our guard to identify what those thoughts are. 
and then be careful of what we let into the gate of our mind. And that when these then thoughts and seeds begin to take root, to quickly counter them with biblical truth. You know, so much of the Christian life is putting off and putting on. That we're putting off old patterns of thinking, of desiring and behaving, and putting on new patterns that fit our identity more clearly. And so we have to identify what, what needs to be thrown out before we can identify what needs to be brought in. And so that would be kind of foundationally what I would say is that we guard the gate of our mind, identifying those seeds of discontent, and then cultivating a, a measure of gratitude, of, of uh, recognition even of what we have in Christ. One only need to set up a website and they figure this out. We're going through in our company and then my wife and her ministry uh, blog uh, website, SEO, search engine optimization. Mm -hmm. We are constantly seeking clients. She's seeking individuals to, who, who need to hear what she's ministering. Yep. And it's all about keywords. It's all about phrases. And everybody else is doing that too. And mm -hmm. as you said, they're seeking our attention. They're seeking to convince us that we need what they're selling. I'm seeking to convince potential clients that they need what I'm selling. It's everywhere, whether it's innocuous, you know, and, and not intended to draw people into bad habits. Like I trust my company isn't, sure. but you also have people who are out there with, with very, uh, very bad stuff seeking to attract our attention. Yes. Well, and whether we want to admit it or not, capitalism is based on the foundation of discontent. In fact, when I was in the process of researching this message, it was interesting. I came across a number of quotes that were very complementary of discontentment. They would say, you know, discontentment is the start of real change. And you understand what they're saying there, that we're not apathetic and just content with the status quo, but that it's, it's directing us in a particular way that dissatisfaction is what's going to drive our consumer behavior. Well, as part of our adult Bible fellowship discussion this past Sunday, we reviewed Paul's whole letter. It's interesting when you get to the end and you you, you kind of got to, you think you have an idea, but then the, often the, and in Paul's writing, this is typically the case, he comes down and says, okay, this is what we're really talking about. Mm -hmm. He ends it strong and he ends it uh, uh, with his, one of his big themes. But, <clears throat> You know, if there's any doubt, we found out that review removed all doubt of what Paul was really saying. And your statement as you wrapped up the seeds of discontent illustration was that by sowing these seeds, we are saying to God, I trust neither your process nor your plan. Paul, <clears throat> Paul trusted God's process and his plan, <clears throat> excuse me. And he is throughout the scripture reminding people of where he is throughout this passage or this uh, letter, reminding people where he is, what kind of situation he's up against. But he's saying, no, God is, basically God is my all in all, and mm -hmm. I will rejoice in him. Oh, to have a heart like that. Absolutely. Well, and it gets to the heart of why it's so important to have good theology. And many times when we talk about theology, people think about like a textbook or something, mm -hmm. but every person is a theologian. The question is whether they're a good theologian or a bad theologian. But we saw this back when Paul was talking about anxiety and uh, having thanksgiving for God. And we're, we're seeing that even related to contentment, that what we believe about God and what we believe about ourselves is going to shape the way we respond to our circumstances. And when we struggle with discontentment, when we're dealing with anxiety, many times at the root of that is, I don't believe you're good 
God, I don't believe these circumstances are a part of your plan. I don't believe that you would want me to have unmet desires. And so what we're we're trying to do here is to really get to the root of where's the theological breakdown so that we can begin to root our thinking in truth and then trust that that truth is going to produce good spiritual fruit. And isn't that a lot of what the writer of Hebrews is saying when he says, he or she, uh, says that we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. That's part of that is just surrounding ourselves with the right individuals who have, who are going to challenge us in doctrine and theology and help us live the way God wants us to live. Absolutely. The Christian life was never meant to be lived in isolation and we all, all are going to have our blind spots. And if what we try to do is just say, no, I'm so self-aware, I'm so understanding of where my weak spots are, or blind spots are, We've already set ourselves up for great danger, whereas if what we're doing is is sharing our struggles with others, we are not only supported by the community, but we're also corrected in, in gracious and loving ways to be redirected to the truths we maybe have lost sight of. Tim, Paul gets pretty practical in, in chapter 4, verse 4, and since you weren't here to discuss this last week, last week's passage, let's, let's hit this. Mm-hmm. He wrote, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Now, these are two of the, I think you said 16 times mm-hmm. that we see this idea of joy coming up. This uh, particular verse has a double whammy of it. comes directly after he's pleading with the two ladies, Yodi and Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. Rejoicing doesn't come naturally. We've established that. How do we rejoice? Let's hit it again. How do Mm -hmm. we rejoice in damaged relationships, imprisonment, broken dreams, or whatever isn't going right in our life? Again, it's discipline, but let's again, let's just hit it again. Right. How do we do that? I think at its foundation, we have to clearly understand what we mean by rejoice. And we kind of jokingly talked about this when we were in this passage of that it isn't all about upraised arms and sunsets and, you know, beaches or whatever, that that this, this rejoicing is not just some spontaneous delight, but it's rather a deep dependence, is an attitude of settledness in light of what we have in Christ. And if we can have that sense of security and even serenity that comes by knowing Christ is our anchor so that whatever storms are trying to toss us about, he is going to hold us fast. That's what biblical joy is. I was talking to a member of our church who uh, a number of years ago, they, they lost one of their children. And uh, this member was, was wrestling through, well, what does it mean for me to have joy in those moments? And that's where if we have a a distorted view of joy, what we may essentially be telling them to do is put on a happy face. Jesus is still in charge. I'm glad my son or daughter passed away. Exactly. But if instead what we say is, I am still going to rest in the fact that God is good. I'm going to still trust that these broken pieces of my dreams are being built together in the mosaic of God's sovereign plan. It gives us the hope and the trust that we need to take each step in dependence on the Lord rather than based on what it seems like from our perspective. And it seems to me that a comment you made, oh, maybe a couple of months ago, uh, might come in very handy here, and that is the idea of uh, exploring the idea of lamentations and Mm -hmm. lamenting, biblical lamenting. Absolutely, where we are bringing our, 
our complaints, our disappointments, our uh, discouraged dreams to the Lord, but with a posture of contentedness, of expectancy that says, God, you know all things. You know the state of my broken heart. And so I'm offering it to you in all of its brokenness with the confidence that you are either going to change my circumstances, which is honestly what I long for, or you're going to change me as I trust in your sufficiency through those circumstances. And we don't have any guarantees as to which one he's going to do. You know, there are some times where you know, Peter gets released from prison. There's, there's other times where an apostle, you know, gets killed. Um, you know, Paul prayed that God would take away the, the thorn in his flesh, and God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. And I think the, the, the posture of a lament says, God, things are not what they should be, and I trust that you are going to change it. I just don't know whether that's going to be now or in eternity. Lament sounds like a possible sermon series in the future. Hey, there we'll you see. go. Okay. Uh, another of the themes, Tim, that Paul has shared regularly throughout this letter is the coming resurrection of the dead. We see it in throughout, well, about chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, throughout mm-hmm. uh, chapter 3, 11, 14, verses 20 and 21. Paul is pretty fixated on this truth, and he's calling on the Philippians to do the same, uh, have that same fixation, not at the expense of their of their ministries. I mean, he doesn't say, okay, look at what's coming and let's not worry about everything, but, but actually in pursuit of those ministries. He seems to be saying that the resurrection of the dead is what we should all be aiming for. Is that a fair statement? I think so. I think it's, it's rooting so many of these theological principles first and fundamentally in the resurrection of Christ, which of course is appropriate as we are here in the Passion Week anticipating Resurrection Sunday and as I'm doing even my sermon preparation for this week, just such a reminder that all of the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. That the resurrection is the the final piece of the puzzle that provides clarity on the whole picture of redemption. And so I think Paul, as he is talking about the resurrection of Christ, then orients us to our resurrection that gives us an eternal hope, mm-hmm. that that orients us to the pain and the pressures that we deal with in the present are not ultimately eternal. So, you know, Paul will say in, in Romans chapter 8 that the sufferings of this present life are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. And I think that's important for us to remember is that God's plan is not fundamentally to give us a life that is easy or more comfortable right now, but rather to transform us in the present and to bring us into his presence in the future. And so in that regard, I think the resurrection always needs to be on our forefront, not in an escapist mentality of, I can't wait to get out of here, but with this sense that there is still always hope on the horizon. And in the context of the, in our world here, in, in our little corner of the world, in the context of a death of a young child, mm-hmm. tragic, the death of three children and three adults in a school shooting, mm-hmm. uh, that, and some of us have ties to that school, mm-hmm. uh, and in the, de- in the context of war, and the, 
This is a real thing where we need to remember, hey, this is not all there is, but we still have to live in this. And certainly being a Christian does not relieve us of suffering, but it gives us the opportunity to suffer well and in the right context, knowing that the end is coming and Christ has the end in his hand. Absolutely. Well, let's move on here. A large part of this passage deals with the trials that Paul has experienced. Certainly he's in prison. He's gone through an awful lot. He, he kind of outlines that here. But his understanding of how God is working in and through these trials, of course, you and I and all Christians are going to go through trials of our own, uh, maybe not quite to the extreme that Paul went to. Uh, but if we're not going through one now, it will come. And, and it's natural to want to help ourselves and others. Give us some ideas, Tim, on, on how we can best help when we see one going through a trial, a tragedy, perhaps simply just a tough time. Maybe it's depression, emotional depression. Mm -hmm. It's not right, I'm guessing, to say, well, you know, God willed that this be done and just <laughs> jump into line. How do, how do you come along one who is grieving? Mm -hmm. Such a good question. And I, I think... I would start by saying, here's some things that we shouldn't do, you know, and you, you've already kind of alluded <laughs> yeah. to that because I'll tell you as a pastor, many times, one of the first things I tell a couple or a family as I sit down with them to start talking about the planning of a funeral is to say, you need to know something over the coming days. You are going to have well-meaning people who are going to seek to offer comfort in ways that may actually be hurtful. The, in, in the lack of knowing what to say, they're going to say something that is well-intentioned but misguided. And so if I can maybe start with that so that we all can just be reminded of some things that are are not helpful. And you, you've already alluded to the first one, and that is we need to listen before we speak. Um, Tim Keller has a really helpful sermon on John 11, which is Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus. And he points out that when Mary comes out and sees Jesus and she says, Lord, if only you had been here. She lays into him. She does. And Jesus just weeps. Even though he could have given a theological treatise on why he allowed it and what he was going to do. And Keller brings out the point that many times what we need is the ministry of tears before we are ready for the ministry of truth. That just really hit me pastorally that if we rush too quickly to put Romans 8.28 or, or any other number of, of good biblical truths into a situation, what we may actually be doing is trivializing someone's pain, telling them, well, you shouldn't actually be sad because God's going to work all these things together for good, as if sadness in and of itself was sinful. Scripture tells us that we grieve not as those who have no hope, but we do grieve. And so giving people permission to grieve, reminding them that tears are not necessarily a lack of faith, but a depth of love. And so I think that's the first thing I would say is just have a ministry of presence in which we are, are listening, are, are asking questions, or maybe just being silent, because that may be what they need. I think another thing would be to, to resist the urge to fill the silence with unhelpful comments, things like, well, you know, it could be worse, you know, or, well, I, I'm really sorry that you lost your child, but you do have three other children at least. Or you can have more. Right. You can have, you know, those types of things, um, or even speculating of, 
well, maybe God let this happen so that. As if we had insight into God's sovereign mind. All of those things well-intentioned, but honestly, most of the time, unhelpful. So guarding our mouth of not saying things that are unhelpful, but that instead we are, are ministering with our presence, we are ministering with our tears, and we are investing in the long haul. Because so many times, especially when somebody's dealt with with trauma or grief, I was just telling our pastoral intern this, they're not going to remember what you said in, in that first meeting. Unless. <laughs> unless it's foolish. Yes, exactly. Then they, they may call it to mind very vividly. But you can minister biblical truth, and God's going to use that. I'm, I'm not trying to n- minimize that. But what they are likely to remember is that you were there. And then in the months and years that follow, when they're bumping up against that raw grief and it just takes their breath away, they know there are people there that care and that pray. And I would add to that, you know, when often when someone deals with a tragedy, we say, I'm going to pray for you. Do it. Follow through. Maybe tell right them, there. Tell them exactly what you're praying for them or exactly just bow and, and pray in that moment if it's appropriate. Investing in ways that that bring the ministry of presence and the ministry of truth together in a very relational way is the best way I know to be the hands foot, hands and feet of Jesus in those moments. And let's be clear, this is not only in tragic circumstances. How many times, I know you don't do this, but sometimes Sandy comes to me and just needs to unload mm-hmm. some hurt, uh, some heartache. Mm-hmm. And my nature, Tim, <clears throat> is to fix it and tell her exactly the way she should be thinking. Mm. Um, This may or may not have happened this weekend. (laughs) And I, 33 years, you would think I'd know, but we all deal with this husbands and wives, Mm -hmm. friends, uh, uh, parents of children. We do need to be quiet first, probably more quiet and less talk is probably a good rule. Absolutely. And so many times people are not, willing or, or ready to listen until they really feel understood. And and sometimes what we try to do is fix a problem that, that that person isn't actually dealing with, but that we jump to conclusions or we assume that they must think the same way that we do or respond to certain cir- circumstances the way we would, and that, that we're trying to fix a problem that isn't even there, rather than listening to understand, asking questions to to deepen our our comprehension of the situation. And then often by that point, they already have a sense of what God is doing, but we've just been a partner in that dialogue and allowing the Holy Spirit to do the work that that we maybe would be tempted to try to do on our own. And what you seem to be saying is try to figure out what the real issue is. It's often not what they originally say. Absolutely. So many times what we need to do is take whatever the fruit is and help them trace down to what the root is. They may not even realize, um, but in the course of the conversation, it may become more apparent. More quiet, less talk. Good. Okay, we've finished Philippians, and we're, I don't know, it's been, what, two, three months that we've been there. Mm -hmm. Great study. Where from here? Yep, so Easter Sunday, we're going to be dealing with the resurrection out of Luke 24 and the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Then the next Sunday, uh, Trent Rogers is going to speak, which I'm really excited about. It's been a while since he's been able to preach for us. And then we're going to begin a new series. It's going to be a four-week topical series (gasps) on, on understanding and obeying 
the will of God. Uh, the reason why we're going to do a topical series, let me just take a moment to explain this. It's still going to be exposition of scripture, but there are certain topics that there's not just a, a central passage or passages that deal with a particular topic, but rather what we need to do is take many of the different teachings throughout scripture and put them together into a paradigm that help us understand it more fully. The topic of the Holy Spirit would be a good example, actually, of that. There's certain passages where Jesus will teach us on the Holy Spirit, but unless we bring those together, we may be prone to overemphasizing or underemphasizing certain aspects. And the idea of the will of God is something that I feel like many people have misunderstood, either from some bad teaching or, quite honestly, just from a lack of teaching, and that we begin to develop certain ideas. And so what we want to do is, is explore what God has to say to us in his word about his sovereign will, his moral will, and how those truths begin to guide us as we make decisions in our everyday lives. Great. And topical. Hey, let's talk briefly. Sure. You, you, you mentioned that we are historically and we seek to be and we preach expositionally. Mm -hmm. Typically, we are preaching through books of the Bible. Mm -hmm. What are what is your philosophy personally on the idea? Uh, you shared a little bit, but mm -hmm. on the idea of topical preaching, uh, its usefulness, uh, why we don't do more, why we do what we do. Yep. Yeah. So I believe that topical preaching can and I would even go so far as to say should be a part of a balanced diet of preaching. And, and we want to be clear. When we talk about topical, we don't mean that it's no longer expositional. We are still expositing God's word, but rather we're doing it around a topic or a theme, gathering a variety of scriptures that help us to understand that theme. And the reason why I would say I think that's a part of important part of a balanced diet, you may notice that as we go through our sermon calendar, we do some Old Testament literature, we do some New Testament epistles. We do some New Testament gospels. This summer, we're going to be in some of the minor prophets. We believe that all scripture is inspired. And therefore, we want to unpack books, but we also want to understand certain concepts with their appropriate biblical foundation. And there are certain topics like forgiveness would be another example, where if we only deal with it as it comes up, it's going to be very sporadic and incomplete. We're not going to be able to unpack the topic of forgiveness just because we got to the parable on the unforgiving servant, for instance. We're only going to be able to deal with that in its context in a, a small way. And so sometimes I think it's helpful to put several different pieces together so that we can see the bigger picture more clearly. Great, great. Well, Tim, thanks so much for coming back after three weeks, and we'll see, talk to you here again in a couple. Really appreciate all the work you do on our behalf. Excellent. Thanks, Bart. We have been digging deeper today with Tim Cockrell. You can access Grace Sermons and podcast episodes on demand by visiting gracecedarville.org on the World Wide Web and clicking the Media tab. And we also encourage you to share your questions and comments with us each week. You can email those to contact at gracecedarville.org. And plan to join us next time. We'll be continuing our discussion of God's Word. Until we meet again, I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, thanking you for tuning into this episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. Digging Deeper in Grace is a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Visit us online at gracecedarville.org and join us next time as we continue our discussion. In the meantime, we invite you to continue digging deeper in grace as you read God's Word.